this morning we're going to be, as announced already, in Exodus 15, and there should be a bulletin outline that you have there, and there are printed messages at the exits. You can uh, pick up one now or later if you like. I think they're blue today. And I'm going to read the uh, entire chapter here. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That's Yahweh there both times. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness... You have led the people whom you have redeemed in your strength. You have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, And they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, 
or Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah. Marah means bitterness. For they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. I think that uh, all of us have our lists of sins that we rank, some being really terrible sins and then working the way down the list to things we maybe just would shrug off as, it's not really a big deal. We'd all agree, I think, that killing innocent people is a really terrible sin. In fact, even killing your enemy is a, a terrible sin. Uh, We all agree that raping women or molesting little children, those are really, really bad. Robbery and burglary are bad, but as long as nobody gets hurt, we wouldn't rank them as high as some of those other more destructive sins. And so we kind of work our way down the list, and we're usually pretty careful to keep our own besetting sins down somewhere low on the list. Uh, You know, I mean... I have my faults, but I'd never commit those terrible sins, and so I view myself generally as a pretty good sinner, you know? Uh, And uh, I might admit, well, yeah, I have a tendency to grumble now and then, uh, but it's just a minor fault. In fact, you know, I might not even call it a sin at all until, that is, I read the Bible, And then I realize that's a bad sin. God's just delivered Israel from Pharaoh's pursuing army. He parted the Red Sea for their escape. He brought the sea back on the Egyptian army. And then Israel has this joyous time of worship that's reported in verses 1 through 21 where the whole congregation, two million of them, are singing to the Lord And then we read that Israel went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. And then they came to Marah where there was water, but they found out it was bitter, undrinkable water. But rather than trusting in the Lord, who had just worked this miraculous deliverance for them, they grumbled. Now, it's easy for me to sit in my comfortable home, you know, the armchair quarterback thing, and I shake my head and say, how could they do that? I mean, how in the world could they do that? Right after God has delivered them, uh, couldn't they just trust in the Lord and say, well, you know, uh, for a while our problem was too much water, now it's not enough water. Water doesn't seem to be a problem to the Lord, so Lord... We need water. 
and God could have provided it. And yet, when I encounter minor trials, my default mode is often to do as they did, grumble, 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 you know, and complain against the Lord rather than trusting Him who delivered me with just as mighty a deliverance as He did Israel from Egypt when He delivered me from Satan's domain of darkness. I believe that the Spirit of God inspired Moses to put these two incidents in the same chapter to teach us a lesson. I thought about just giving one message on the Song of Moses and one on the grumbling at Marah. And then I thought, no, I think the Lord has something to teach us by putting those both right here next to each other. And that is this message, that if God has saved you, joyfully sing his praises, but avoid this sin, terrible sin of grumbling. So first I want to look at the song, and then we'll look at the sin. Uh, The song tells us, if God has saved you, joyfully sing his praises. And scholars have a number of um, ways to analyze this psalm and break it down, but I think the easiest way is to see that verses 1 through 12 are rejoicing in what God has just done, and then verses 13 down through 18 are uh, rejoicing by faith, in what God is going to do. He hasn't done it yet, but by faith they view it as done. You'll notice that verses 13 through 15 use the past tense. Uh, Verse 16 uses the present tense, and then verses 17 and 18 use the future tense, but they're all looking at these events of Israel going into the land, conquering the residents of Canaan, and dwelling in the land as if they're done. God has done them. And then verse 19 recaps the victory that chapter 14 described, the parting of the sea. And then in verses 20 and 21, it tells how Miriam led the women in um, singing and dancing, praising the Lord through this time of worship. Three main lessons here about worship that Uh, I want to point out. And the first one just is that singing about God's salvation should be joyful. This is the first recorded song in all the Bible. And its mood is decidedly joyful as seen in these women. They're playing the timbrel. Uh, That was like a tambourine type thing. And uh, they are dancing. And you get the impression as you read this psalm These people seem to be happy about something. Uh, There's just this exuberance about the whole thing. And you'll notice that the singing was both congregational in verse 1. Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song. And it was personal in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord. And worship should be both. you and I need to be worshiping the Lord throughout the week, and that's important. But then, when you gather with the congregation, it kind of gets multiplied by the number of people joining together, their voices in joyful singing to the Lord, and it magnifies His name all the more with all of God's people singing about His great salvation. Uh, you'll notice that there's not a word in the song 
about Moses except in the first verse that he sang this song. And it's not even called the Song of Moses here. That comes out of Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3. But it's not about what Moses did. There's no mention of his faith. Uh, There's no mention of the people's faith by putting the blood on the doorposts as they had to do to avoid the destroying angel or the faith it took to walk through this wall of water on each side of you and go through. Uh, Rather, everything is about the Lord and directed to the Lord. In verse 1, they sang this song, you notice, to the Lord. Uh, And then they said, I will sing to the Lord, verse 1 again. And certainly there is a proper place for admonishing, teaching one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as Colossians 3.16 says. But in Colossians 3.16, it's still to the Lord. You'll notice it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, corporately, the church, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then the final phrase, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Notice, to God. We sing to God. So when we worship, God is our audience. Forget about everyone else and focus on, Lord, I want to please you with my worship. Now Israel, of course, was joyous Because God has just delivered them from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and from Pharaoh's threatening army. But throughout the Old Testament, the Exodus is viewed as the main example of God's salvation of his people. And so when we come to the New Testament, uh, it, it applies to us that God has saved us with his mighty arm. He has delivered us from a terrible, terrible foe. And, you know, that is something to get excited about. Don't ever let yourself get bored about, oh yeah, God saved me, ho-hum. That is wrong. Uh, We should get excited about it. I believe that's why the Lord told us to celebrate the Lord's Supper often. It is a reminder of our salvation that Christ gave himself on the cross for our sins and that we are totally forgiven through what he did. And, you know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And you think, well, I'm not going to forget the Lord. And yet, let's face it, we get busy with so many things and we forget what God has done. And so think often Every morning at least, think often on where would I be if God hadn't saved me? Uh, And what did Jesus do on the cross for me? And if you can sit and think about what he did on the cross for you and you're bored with it, then you need to repent and ask the Lord, Lord, restore my first love for you because he did the most for us. And it shouldn't just be shrug your shoulders and, yeah, let's get on with life. It it should touch our hearts. John Stott told a story about a Salvation Army drummer who got saved. And uh, he was beating his drum so loudly that the drum 
uh, the uh, band leader had to tell him to tone it down. And in his Cockney accent, I can't re replicate the Cockney accent exactly, but he said to the uh, band leader, God bless you, sire. Since I've been converted, I'm so happy I could burst the blooming drum. <laughs> he was excited about the Lord. And uh, please understand here, I'm not talking about pumping up your own emotions, and I'm not talking about the worship team manipulating, you know, with a song here that's going to pump up everyone's emotions. What I'm talking about is this. Think about what God did in sending His own Son to die on the cross so that we would be delivered from eternal damnation. And then let that move your heart to sing joyously. Uh, Jesus, you know, said, God's seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. The truth is who God is, what He's done. Spirit is, I believe, there our inner being, innermost being. Uh, the second lesson here, then, is that our joyful singing should exalt the Lord who has saved us from a terrible past and He's promised us a glorious future. And that's just following the outline of the psalm. Verses 1 through 12, terrible past. Uh, 13 through 18, a glorious future. First of all, in 1 through 12, the Lord has saved us from a terrible past. And the first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt, they all remembered very well what their past was. Now, as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, they're going to exaggerate the good and minimize the bad of being slaves in Egypt when they say, we'd like to go back and rather be slaves in Egypt than starve out in this wilderness. But they remembered. Some of the older ones remembered how Pharaoh had ordered them to kill all their male babies, and some of them had lost children. Uh, all of them who came out remembered the tedium of every morning getting up and from sunrise to sunset making bricks out in that hot Egyptian sun. Many of them maybe had scars even on their backs from the, the lashes of the taskmaster who were um, whipping them when they couldn't produce their quotas. And in verse 9, they rehearse Pharaoh's most recent evil intent. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw up my sword and my hand will destroy them. That whole verse is full of I and my, isn't it? He is proudly determined he's going to get these people uh, back in place. Now the problem was, subsequent generations only knew the story. And as the generations went on, the story got a little dimmer and dimmer. Oh yeah, that happened back hundreds of years ago. And it wasn't felt so much. But, you know, that's a problem for us too, maybe. Especially if you're a second or third generation Christian. Um, you, like me, may think, well, I was raised in the church. And I don't have a terrible past that I was saved from. But, you know, that's not true. That's not true. Uh... I used to have a friend, I looked him up online this week to see if I could track him down and there was an obituary, he died in 2011, but this guy's name was Glenn. 
I've told you about him before. But Glenn got saved in Tehachapi Prison doing five years to life for drug dealing. He uh, got saved at the exact moment he later found out his mother was at home on her knees praying for her son. And he walked into the chapel and picked up a tract and read it, and God opened his heart. And uh, Glenn was this exuberant evangelist. He would walk into a restaurant, see you across the restaurant, and say, Hallelujah, Brother Steve! And everyone in the restaurant looks over, and now he's got their attention, right? So he hands them a tract as he goes and says, Here's my story. I was saved when I was in prison. And people would reach out for him. You know, give me one. Yeah, thank you. And I remember walking down the boardwalk at Seal Beach one night with him, and every person he would stop and say, God saved me when I was in prison here. Read my story. And uh, one of Glenn's favorite uh, phrases was, I've been forgiven much, and so I love Jesus much. And that kind of bugged me. Because I thought, where's that leave me? You know? I've never been in prison. Uh, I've never once been drunk in my life. I've never used illegal drugs. Never even had a puff on a marijuana joint. I mean, I, I just didn't do all that stuff. And so what about me? You know, how can I say I was forgiven much and so I love Jesus much? And then I was meditating on Luke chapter 7 where Jesus uses that phrase of the sinful woman who came into the Pharisee's home as Jesus was dining with the Pharisee and she wet his feet with her tears and anointed him with perfume. And I realized that the point of that story, Simon was proud and he thought, how can this man allow this woman even to touch him if he's a prophet? She's a sinner. And the point of that story is, Simon, you're a sinner too. You're a bigger sinner maybe than that woman is because you're so arrogant and proud you think you can get into heaven by your good works. And the point of that story again for all of us is stop and think where you would be if God had not saved you. Maybe you had the privilege as I did of being raised in a Christian home and spared from a lot of outward bad sin. But God looks on the heart. And my heart is just as wicked as the drug dealer or the terrorist or anyone else if God had not intervened. And sin is a matter of the heart. And so you stop and think about your terrible past and where would I be had God not delivered me? I would be heading for eternal judgment. Not only did the Lord save us from a terrible past, but the Lord has promised us a glorious future. And that's verses 13 to 18. In verses 13 to 17, Moses looks ahead to what God is going to do, and he describes this glorious future as if it's already a done deal. God will bring his people into his holy habitation. Verse 13, he's going to cause the inhabitants of the land to tremble in anguish. That's verse 14 and uh, 15. Uh, He's going to plant his people in the mountain of his inheritance where he's going to dwell with them in his sanctuary. Um, That's down in verse 17. 
And all of this is looking more than 40 years ahead because they still got 40 years to go in the wilderness. And then Joshua's got to lead them in the land. And then there's all the years of conquering the uh, Canaanites and so on. But by faith, Moses is looking ahead saying, this is a done deal because God promised it. And, and then in verse 18, he states the reason why he could do this by faith. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. If that's true, then his promises are true. And while the Bible very plainly and repeatedly describes the many trials and hardships that the Lord's people have to go through, it also gives us the glorious promise, Jesus is coming back. And he's going to take us to be with him. And it's going to be far more glorious than we can even imagine to be with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no crying and there will be no tears. There will be no pain. There will be no death. And as we think on the many, many glorious promises that the Lord has given us for the future, then we should exalt him with joyful singing. So our singing should be joyful and our singing should exalt the Lord because he saved us from this terrible past and he's promised us a glorious future. But then thirdly, our joyful singing should exalt the Lord for his attributes and his actions. First of all, exalt the Lord for his awesome attributes and the song is filled with them. It says in verse 1, he's highly exalted. It says 11 times in this psalm that he is Yahweh, And that takes us back to chapter 3 with Moses and the burning bush that God is the self-existent, eternal one as he revealed himself there. He is our covenant God. Uh, He is the only God, verse 11. He is powerful. That's mentioned, uh, what, seven or so times there. He is holy. He is loving. He is sovereign over all. And the only place we can really know what God is like is in his revealed word. We can't sit around and speculate, well, I think God is this and I think he's that. No, it's in his word. And I would encourage you, be in the habit of reading God's word consecutively through and through and through and through because you get the balance then of who God is like. If you only go to your favorite little passage, oh, God is love. I love that verse. Well, I'm glad you do. I do too. But that's not all he is. Uh, he is a warrior, as was pointed out here. Uh, You've got to have the whole picture of who God is. And then exalt the Lord for his almighty actions too. It says in verse 2, he has become our salvation. He is the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, the, my father's God. It says in verse uh, 2. He is a warrior in verse 1 and again in verse 3 who hurled Pharaoh's mighty warriors and their horses into the sea. Um, Verses 14 through 16 talk about his burning anger consuming rebellious sinners who are enemies of his people. He works wonders in verse 11. He guides his people whom he has redeemed to his holy habitation in verse 13 and 16. He gives them an inheritance, verse 17. He dwells with his people, verse 17. And he reigns forever. So the point of the song is pretty simple. And that is, if God has saved you, joyfully, joyfully sing his praises. And our times of worship here should just 
express that so that just as if you walked into the congregation of Israel on the shore of the Red Sea, you'd look around and say, man, these people are happy about something. I pray that people who wander into our service and don't know the Lord would go, these people have something. What is it? And our singing should express that. Now, when you consider all the reasons here we have to exalt and praise our gracious God, the grumbling in the next section just kind of jars you. You know, you sit there for a minute and say, what? I mean, how can they do that? And then you realize, I know how they could do that because I do that. But the point of the second section here is that if God has saved you, avoid the terrible sin of grumbling. And I think God put verses 22 to 27 here just to show us all, there's my heart. I can walk out of church having a wonderful time of worship or go from my quiet time having a great time with the Lord and something happens that isn't too pleasant and I, oh man, you know, and I'm, I'm grumbling. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, the text, Steve, never says here that grumbling is a sin. Uh, there are over a dozen passages in the Pentateuch where Israel grumbled against the Lord. We'll see another one in chapter 16. But Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, brings up Israel's grumbling and says, that's the reason the Lord swore in His anger that this generation would not enter His rest. They would not go into Canaan. The Lord was displeased with them because of their grumbling. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, it quotes Psalm 95, uh, verses uh, 8 through 11. And then it applies it to us. Hebrews 3.12 gives us this direct application. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. That's the sin of grumbling he's describing. It's an evil, unbelieving heart, and it's evidence that I'm falling away from the living God. And the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says that all of Israel's experiences in the wilderness are an example for our instruction. And then he warns us there, don't grumble some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, they incurred God's judgment. Four things just to say here about grumbling. The first one I've already alluded to, and that is experiencing God's salvation in the past is no guarantee that we won't fall into grumbling in the future. Now, I realize not all of the Jews who physically came out of Egypt with Moses were what we would call born-again people. Uh, they were God's people in the sense corporately, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.2, uh, they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So they were corporate, and yet many of them perished because of their unbelief. They, they clearly were not regenerate people. And yet, in spite of experiencing this mighty deliverance by God uh, from slavery in Egypt, they immediately and then repeatedly fall into this sin of grumbling. And as I said, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul relates this whole history and 
warns us against it. And then in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10, he applies it to us and says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So all of us are prone to this sin, even though we've experienced God's gracious salvation, and we have to be on guard against it. And then secondly, grumbling stems, I think, from false expectations about God's gracious salvation. I don't have biblical evidence for this, but I guess if you would take a poll of Israel after they came out from Egypt, they would have thought, hey, we're almost there. Short distance up to the promised land, we'll move in. God's going to give us all the blessings and promises they gave to Abraham and displace the Canaanites, and life will be grand. We'll be living there in a land flowing with milk and honey soon. But as we saw back in chapter 13, God took them on the scenic route, 40 years in the wilderness, to test them. And now Moses takes them three days into the wilderness, and they first find no water, and then they find bitter water, And I think many of them were thinking, this isn't the program I signed up for. You know, that's not what I was wanting or expecting. And, you know, I've found that with some new believers. They think that now that they're Christians and God is caring for them, and since he's a God of love, everything's going to go wonderfully. You know, all the problems will dissolve and and, uh, things will go well at work, at home, Uh, in their career, whatever, and then they find no water, and then they find the water they come to is kind of bitter. And uh, God here delivers Israel, and it's a picture from what Hebrews chapter 12 says, how God disciplines us as his children, says, for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And the Apostle Paul went back and instructed new converts in Acts 14.22, and he told them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Trials, as I said last week, are a part of God's program for us in this life. So don't expect a trouble-free life, because... If you do, your expectations are not going to be met and you're going to fall into grumbling. A third thing about grumbling is that it impugns God's loving and gracious and faithful character. Verse 24 says, The people grumbled against Moses, but implicitly their grumbling was against God. God had led them by the cloud. So it wasn't like Moses said, We're going to go this way and... And uh, he led them wrong. Moses was following the cloud. And the cloud led them right to where they are. Uh, Spurgeon observed, Usually we aren't honest enough to admit that we're grumbling against God, so we aim it at at people, our, our circumstances, you know. But God is sovereign over every hair that falls from our head. And... Nothing happens apart from his sovereign will. So if it's a difficult person or a difficult circumstance and I grumble, I'm really saying, uh, God, you don't care about me. 
And God, I know better how I could get on in a happier way in life if you just weren't messing with me. And so it's really impugning the character of God when we grumble. Um, Now, in the Psalms, there is a proper submissive way to bring our complaints to the Lord. The psalmists do that. Grumblers aren't submissive, though. Grumblers are kind of shaking their fist in God's face saying, God, you know, I know better than you do. God, this isn't right. I don't deserve this. That's the attitude of grumbling. Um, And Calvin pointed out in his commentary, God easily could have led Israel right off to fresh water. But he says he led them to bitter water to reveal the bitterness in their own hearts. And isn't that the truth? That when we grumble and complain, it's showing a heart problem with us. Bitterness. And in verse 25, Moses says, God did this to test Israel. And also, I believe God gave them this test to teach them a very important lesson. When you trust God, he can turn the bitter water into sweet water. He shows Moses a tree. And uh, Moses throws the tree in the water and becomes sweet. And commentators are all over themselves on what kind of tree was this? And is there some miraculous uh, quality in a tree that if you throw it in the water, the bitter water becomes sweet? I think the power was God. This was a miracle. God used means. And Jesus did this sometimes. He anointed someone's eyes with clay or he spit and touched a man's tongue and so on. He could have just healed him. He used means, and uh, I don't know why he used the tree. Maybe it's to show us that he has adequate resources that we don't even know about to turn the bitter water in our lives into sweet water if we trust him. Um, But um, in the Garden of Eden, if you go in the Pentateuch back to trees and trace it through, there were two trees. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat that one. There was the tree of life. And after Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the fruit that they shouldn't, God barred them from the tree of life. But then when you get to the very end of the Bible, in the new heavens and new earth, there's also a tree of life. And it says it's for the healing of the nations. And uh, eating of that tree, and I believe that tree symbolizes Christ and the cross, turns the bitterness of sin into the sweetness of eternal life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, not to overly spiritualize the tree here, but I believe that maybe it does point us to Christ and says that when we come to Him, even the bitter trials we go through can be made sweet because we have the Lord Jesus with us. So, First lesson here, experiencing God's salvation in the past is no guarantee we won't grumble in the future. Grumbling, secondly, stems from false expectations. Now that I belong to the Lord, He's going to spare me. That's not true. Grumbling impugns God's loving and faithful character. And then finally, grumbling hinders us from enjoying God's abundant blessings. Notice verses 26 and 27 again. God said, if you will give earnest heed 
to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. And then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there besides the waters. Now be clear, obedience is not the means of salvation but it's the fruit of salvation. God has already delivered Israel and now he says, I'm going to tell you what you must do to obey me. And disobedience, including the sin of grumbling, I believe, brings God's corrective discipline into our lives. Now some pounce on verse 26 and say that God is going to heal us from all physical diseases. But I've noticed that faith healers tend to die about the same rate the rest of us do. Uh, That's never a promise of God in the Bible. Um, Even obedient Israelites got sick and died at some point, as we all do. I believe what God is promising here is that if Israel will obey him, he's not going to bring the plagues that he had just brought on Egypt on Israel. And it certainly does point out the truth, and we all know this. God is able to heal us if it's his will, physically. It's not always his will. Um, The fact that the Lord Jesus went around preaching the gospel and healing people shows that he is the Lord, our healer. He is uh, this same Lord that announced his role as healer in Exodus. And he can heal our bodies, as I said, when it's his will to do so. But here's the important thing. Jesus can heal your soul and give eternal life to every person who turns to him in faith. And that is the most important thing, because if he tarries, all of us are going to die. But Jesus, as he said there at the tomb of Lazarus, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And then he pointedly asked Martha, Do you believe this? And that's his question for you. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus who can give eternal life? And he is sufficient for our every need. We'll look at this more next time with the manna. But whether you have a physical need, emotional need, or spiritual need, look to him. And then the final verse of the chapter, I think, is there. And we'll see this again next week. To illustrate one thing, God is gracious to sinners. God is gracious to sinners. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Uh, Israel has grumbled against him, and he gives them sweet water at Marah, and then they march on and they come to Elam. Spurgeon points out there were 12 springs of water, one for every tribe. There are 70 date palms, one for every uh, elder in Israel. And there's no recorded grumbling there. Now, I can't help but wonder if some didn't grumble when they left. You know, I mean, what's wrong with Elam? Let's just stay here. We got water. We got date palms. We can grow things with the water. Now we're going back out in that stinking wilderness. Uh, We'll see next time. There is some grumbling when they get out in that wilderness. But you have to ask, well, why didn't Israel just settle in Elam? And the answer is clearly... Because God had something better. 
And you know, God gives us good blessings here. Our homes, our families, our physical uh, belongings and all of that. But don't get settled here. We're just pilgrims. And God has promised something far better when we will be with him. And all the blessings he gives us here are just a foretaste. You ain't seen nothing yet. The heaven will be far, far, far better than what we have here. I can still remember, <clears throat> and it's been 48 years, I was figuring out when this happened, 48 years ago, 1970, I was in Dallas, in seminary. Dallas in the fall is hot, I mean 100 degree hot, and humid. It's very uncomfortable. It's like walking outdoors into a sticky blast furnace, but... Uh, I was taking a bath one day and I was grumbling because my apartment did not have air conditioning and it didn't have a shower. It only had a bath. And I don't like taking baths, I like showers. So I'm sitting in my bathtub grumbling to myself, rah, 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 you know, stupid apartment here, rah, rah, rah. And then I didn't hear a voice, but God distinctly brought to my mind the fact that the Vietnam War was going on. And I could be over there in a foxhole in a hot, sweaty jungle with bullets flying all around me. And which would I prefer, my bathtub in Dallas or a foxhole in Vietnam? And I instantly repented of my grumbling. Now, I wish I could report that's the last time I grumbled. You know, that took care of it. I'm done. Uh, that isn't the truth. I have to fight it all the time. Thankfulness is the antidote to grumbling, and Paul commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it's one of those impossible commands, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now you say, how can I begin to obey that command? Well, first of all, you have to be able to say what Moses says here in verse 2, and that is, this is my God and I will praise him. It's not my father's God only. This is my God. In other words, you have to enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. And that makes everything new. That makes everything new. And he gives you his Holy Spirit, who, among other things, gives you joy. Love, joy, peace, and all that. And then you can begin practicing for heaven. By practicing, I mean singing joyous praises to God because He is your salvation. And in heaven, we're going to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Revelation 15, 3. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Let's pray. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, you can do so in your own heart, just right there silently and say, Oh Lord God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I deserve your judgment for my many sins, but I now trust in Christ who died on the cross to save me. If you're a believer and you can kind of relate to Israel in the wilderness, yeah, yeah, I've been grumbling this week. Again, the good news is 
God leads, leads grumblers to Elam, where there's fresh water and date palms and all the goodies. He just wants us to confess our sins, and he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Dear Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for all your goodness to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.